Hey, it's Chad, Spiritual Punk Rock Redneck, episode 17. This episode, my buddy Chris graces me with his his intellect and his charm because Chris is a professor at Texas A&M University where he teaches nautical archaeology among a bunch of other things. And so we have a great discussion on that topic and a bunch of others. Man, this guy... I can't wait to have him on again. We'll put it that way. So, Chris, I was talking to you the other day, and you told me that you worked on the World Trade Center wreck. Um, sure did. Yeah. And I also got to work on that a little bit in the past. And yeah, you introduced me to it, actually. Um, cool. Yeah, that's right. Like when we when uh, you first came out to the lab there, I. Uh, I'd really like to start with kind of, I don't know how much you know, I'm going to kind of try and go off of memory. I'll probably put some uh, links in the show notes, you know, okay, to kind of, f- to fill in our gaps, right? I'll do a little <laughs> bit, of, I'll do a little bit of homework when we're done to fill in the gaps. Uh, it's always best to do it after the show, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, well, I mean, we just talked the other day, so we just got this going. But I was like, yeah, I'm just excited about it because this was one of the shipwrecks that I'm, like, really passionate about just because of, like, how American it is. Yeah. Um, and it's probably British, but yeah. Oh, okay. See, that's not, <laughs> see, that's not the story that I know. Like, I know. A, oh, really? Yeah. So this will be great. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I'll start with what I know for kind of a little bit. So um, World Trade Centers come down. When they're digging out the foundations, they find a ship or the remains, right. the remains of the hull of a hull of a ship. Um, yeah, just like the bottom of it. Yeah. And it had been like filled with rocks and debris to build up part of the Manhattan Island. Right. Or the. Right. The, the the ground in which the trade centers were built on. And this was a typical process for, you know, cultures around the world to take old boats and then fill them up with stuff and then sink them and, like, make artificial land out of them, basically. Yeah, if you're filling in a harbor, you're not going to drag stuff out. Yeah, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the smartest way to do it. Um, and then unfortunately, like how they, they like built a wall through it or something, or was the wall built the original? I don't remember. Yeah. And like the, when they were building the towers in the seventies, somebody saw the ship and was just like, "Eh." and they just put like a, 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 one of the walls for a parking garage, like right through about two thirds of the way forward from the, the stern. Yeah. So a big chunk of that was lost. The larger section of the ship was excavated first um, pretty rapidly, right? They did it real quick, like in a couple of days, I think. Um, 
<laughs> so the rapidly excavated rear half of the ship and then it was yeah. it was put into pods um yeah. basically like wrap, wrapped in wet towels and then put into black trash bags and shipped to us in pods and then um myself and probably a couple other people i know i don't do didn't do anything out there alone you know like everything was multiple hands-on that's just how the whole place runs um but taking all the timbers out like cataloging them and cleaning them like because they were all covered in mud they didn't like clean them off and I had mentioned this, I think, uh, in a previous episode that one of the cool things that I had found was an apple core or like a, the stem of an apple. Right. Oh, that's badass. Yeah. You see, like, you're like, oh, that's badass. But like, yeah, yeah. it's just the stem of an apple. But that's like, you know, I don't know. I just felt it felt really cool to find that in there it was like from the dude loading the truck like um. <laughs> no it was like in it was like in the mud like up against you know no, what i mean I like up against the timber yeah, so yeah. it was pretty obvious but it was just like oh um but yeah and then another girl came and um she took pictures of everything with the little uh black and white squares yeah yeah and then um i don't know what happened from there um it kind of went into storage into freshwater storage um from yeah. there um, and that's the last I know of it. I can definitely give you some details after that. Um, so that what was that like 2011 or 2010 or something? 2012, I want to say. 2012. Okay, okay. So, yeah, they all went into that big vat. And um, we were storing the timbers waiting for some kind of like contractual payment, I guess, to, to start conserving them. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, you know, what, I'm sure you probably remember all this, but, uh, the, the big thing that we had to do before we started to bulk the wood with the polyethylene glycol was remove all the iron. Oh yes. Um, Yeah. So that was the big thing that happened with like the Vasa in Sweden and everything about the iron that's still in the wood starts to interact with the wax that we use to uh, consolidate the the cells and it creates acids and starts to break down. So um, we were waiting on basically a go, and then that contract finally followed through, and then we started doing um, mechanical cleaning of the timbers. So you remember the air scribing? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> I kinda, it's um, enjoyable, though. Like, I like air scribing. It is. You can really get into a zen. It's just like doing uh, mindless labor with a loud noise humming in the background. Well, it's, it's like, there's something... There's something for this, satisfying like, about chipping away that the the con- the concretion and stuff like just because you're like following a line and it's like flaking off and it just feels good when it flakes off. I don't know. It's like peeling yeah, sunburned right. skin. <laughs> it's not a bad analogy, man. Good. It feels good. Uh, it, it feels good unless you mess it up, and then it's yeah. really bad. But then you go, yeah, and I, yeah, I've done yeah. that too. Yeah, we all have. Um, but so um, the contract started. We started um, air scribing, mechanically cleaning everything. And um, we needed to, to document it, as you know, like to, so that we could start to understand the ship before the uh, conservation was all done, right? Mm-hmm. So um, the 
in 2015, man. I the yeah, years are starting that, to blend together. Yeah. Um, I went with um, Philippe Castro. We did a project on the coast of Portugal together. And um, there was a dude from uh, the university in Wales that came out and they were recording the timbers with the Pharaoh arm. You remember the Pharaoh arm? Oh yeah. Like a, the articulated arm that you can like take measurements with by like touching it and then dragging. Yeah. I think a lot of people would recognize this from like uh, Orange County choppers. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Jay Leno's got him on his like YouTube show. Sure. Um, so it was a way to record the shape of the timber in 3D. It gives you really precise measurements. But we were on this project, and um, prior to this, I had been doing a lot of laser scanning um, to kind of, like, jump way back. Uh, the first project I did at AM was in Florida. It was uh, Jesse Halligan's project in Florida. Oh, yeah. And um, so we were diving with hookahs, you know, like the surface-supplied air. And uh, the engines kept dying, and I was like, hey, man, I can fix engines. And so I spent the rest of that project, like, up away from everybody else working on engines. I got almost no diving in. And so when I got back to, to Texas, I was like, I'm going to find something that I really like to do so that I don't get stuck doing something that I can do. <laughs> and so I... I remember this scanner, happening. I remember you I telling like, me this and this yeah. happening to you. I was like... I'm going to be the guy that does all the laser scanning because laser scanners are inside. It's air conditioned. The data is really cool. Um, so I had just finished up my master's and I, I was, I started laser scanning a ton of stuff for Justin Parkoff, who was doing the Westfield project. Right? Yeah. Um, just so that when I was out of the lab, like I could be like, well, I have to be in the AC guys. Sorry. Cause it's August 108. Outside. Sure. Uh, <laughs> So I was doing all this laser scanning, and then uh, after I finished my master's, um, Donnie Hamilton, the director of the lab and the chair for my committee, was like, so what are you going to do your dissertation on? And I was like, uh, all right, well, let me come up with something. So going back to Portugal, I was watching um, these guys record the timbers with the ferroworm by tracing it, and I thought and they were doing like a timber every day. So I was like, man, I've been doing all this laser scanning. I bet we could do that way faster. Yeah. Um, so the argument initially was um, laser scanning was bad for recording timbers because computers couldn't keep up with the data. Like it's too big of a file. Yeah, it is. And there was it's a no lot of detail. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot, man. Millions of points per timber. Um, but the other thing was that there's no interpretation of the data, right? It's like the difference between drawing something and taking a photo of it. If you want to sit there with a pencil and draw something as closely as you can, you're picking out the details that are important and, and highlighting those, and you're ignoring a lot of the stuff that's not important, whereas a photo captures everything, right? Yeah. So the, that was the original argument against laser scanning timbers. I kind of counter-argued, like, I think it would be better to be able to have people without, like, years of training to understand shipbuilding be able to capture this data, so I was like, I'm going to try it out as a grand experiment. And then uh, I thought, well, what better ship to do this on than the World Trade Center ship, right? Yeah. Um, one of the things that Donnie always told me was like, it takes the same amount of effort to like understand an insignificant site as it does a significant site. So I was like, boom, that's the most significant thing we have. Like, this is the ship from under the World Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, so I spent like the next year taking the timbers out of the vat cleaning them, putting them on a table, laser scanning them. Um, 
And I don't know if you, had you used the laser scanner at that point? Only on like projectile points. Yeah. Right. So like, it's kind of like holding a bucket of water, right? It's not heavy to hold a bucket of water for 30 seconds, but after like 12 hours, man, like I, I have the weirdest musculature now from, from like holding this uh, seven pound laser scanner. For oh, wow. So many hours a day. So um, I went through, I scanned all the timbers. I, actually, this is pretty funny. I scanned most of the timbers. Okay. I was about 80% of the way done. And then the, the arm kept giving me these air that like the sensors in the arm weren't connecting properly. And so I was like, shit, man. Uh, so I took the arm and I took it in the, uh, to, to Helen's office, our chief conservator at the time, who's since yeah. retired, put it on the big table, closed the doors. And I was like, well, this arm's already like, it's almost 10 years old. It's out of warranty. I'm going to see if I can like figure out what's going on. Maybe there's just like a loose wire. So I opened it up and uh, ants poured out of it. What? Invasive species. What, <laughs> dude? You can, Im- imagine... Imagine the horror running through my mind as I thought, like, I am maybe six months out from finishing my dissertation, and I'm dealing with this right now. So, like, <laughs> ants, man. There's a species of ants. There's a species of ants from South America that are uh, they're from the same area that fire ants are from. And so they uh, excrete this, like, uh, stuff out of their back that neutralizes fire ant toxins so they can live among them. But they don't build nests. They just find a place and live in it. And so somehow these, they're called tawny crazy ants. The ants had infiltrated the arm. It was uh, just a disaster. We, uh, Donnie and uh, Pete managed to like cobble enough money together to buy a replacement arm. Uh, and it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the technology had evolved so quickly in the last, like over that decade that the new arm could scan like 80 times faster. And it could probably take like so, 20 times more ants in it. <laughs> yeah, hold a lot more ants. The ant container is bigger. <laughs> um, That's what runs the machine, so, man. Right, like, the ants got out of the- Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> We, that, that still sticks in my mind as like one of the most terrifying. That is crazy. I, um, they do they yeah, were they, they biting ants? Do they no, bite? No, no, they don't bite. Well, they, the fire just, ants in Texas are it. awful. So, oh, don't no, you don't have to tell me that. Yeah. No, they're just uh, yeah. It was wild. But so I uh, got all those put together, and then I made a digital reconstruction of the ship with all those scans. Um, so like kind of going through taking each individual timber and then putting it together kind of like Legos, right. Until I had the, and and I was able to kind of like unflatten it so we could see the shape of it a little bit better. Okay. Cause it was, I was sitting under the world trade center. There was quite a bit of pressure on it over the years. (laughs) Um, so like kind of unflattened it and then started to project what the shape would have looked like, um, a little bit further. And then we took those shapes and developed a full set of blueprints for the ship, or like a set of ship's lines, as you might remember. Nice. And then um, I 3D printed all the timbers to create a physical model of it. How, what's, then, how big was that? I did it at a 1 to 10 scale. Oh, that's pretty um, big. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, about so, you know, or I guess this is audio only. So uh, about three and a half, four feet long. Oh, wow. Um, and then our model maker, Glenn Greico, um, took those lines and the timber models and then CNC'd everything out of wood and then built a full recreation of what we think the ship would have looked like. And so that's in his lab now. Uh, we're still working on that a little bit. 
it's still an ongoing process. We're like, we're still taking the iron out of the wood all these years later. Um, there's a lot of bolts and just big, heavy stuff that we couldn't get out without damaging the wood. So we had to do uh, chemical chelation to break down some of the iron. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then once it breaks down a little bit, we can pull, we, we can physically take the rest of it out. So it's been a long process. Um, I think we're probably looking at wrapping everything up in the next couple of years, but uh, it still needs to go into the freeze dryer and all that jazz. Okay. And then does it have a home yet? Um, it's going to end up in the uh, State Museum in Albany in New York. But we're, there's there's still a few players that are like trying to figure out the logistics of that. But that's where it will be like kind of a, a, a central showpiece in that museum. Do you know anything about uh, the artifacts that were found during the original excavation? shamefully little um me too i know there's like a button yeah there's like a british regiment button that's why i think the ship was british but uh um you know our our kind of working theory right now and pete will get pissed off at me for talking about this again because i know man you gotta have them yeah we um our, our working theory based on the reconstruction it looks a lot like it was a gunboat um, so if you remember, it was put together somewhat hastily with all iron fasteners, which is bananas, right? Yes. Because Cause they rust expensive and it doesn't last long. Right. Um, but the shape of the ship really, it's, it's very reminiscent of like Philadelphia. Um, so we're, we're thinking it was a, a gunboat. It looks like we, we might have evidence of, uh, rowing stations on the upper deck. Whoa. So, but so, yeah, we're kind of operating under the premise that it may have been a gunboat. Um, and, and, you know, we're basically at this point, just trying to prove that wrong before we come out with our findings. Okay. So like the, what I'd kind of remembered vaguely was that the wood though was harvested from somewhere in America. Yeah. The Dendro put it in the same forest where they used the wood to build pretty hall. Um, kind of outside of Philly and Delaware and that. Oh. So it was the, the place where they signed the Declaration of Independence. And the, the Dendro came back at 1773, I think. So, so built uh, after probably that. Probably built maybe right around the Revolutionary War. Um, you know, the, the, it's, it's somewhere in there. It depends how long. Like, that was, that was the fell date. So we don't know how long they waited after that. Okay. But it was hastily built. You know, I'm going back and forth on this, man. Initially, it looked like it may have been hastily built, um, but there's there's some indications that maybe it wasn't. There's it's it's a kind of a typical shipbuilding practice. It was just very lightly built, is what it was. Um, Like real spindly timbers, thin planks. The whole thing was. Yeah, uh, you're right. I remember it now. Like now, I know what you're talking about. It's like real thin. Like yeah, 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 yeah. It would have been it would have been light and you know, uh, but it's hard to say hastily built because this is we're talking seventeen seventies in New York, man. So like the shipbuilding industry was big, huge. So a master craftsman could get a boat in the water in a couple of weeks, and it would be something that would last for decades. Yeah. So, the, so it's it's I'm careful to project that kind of thing because there's a big part of my brain that wants to like write this cool story about what this ship was. Yeah. Um, And you got to push back on that, you know? Sure. Well then there's also, I remember something about like the Teredo species. So like the ship boring worms, 
the worms, like those kind of show the area, the regions in which the ship had sailed. Yeah. So they, the, the report that they put out said that that species was native to the Caribbean. And so that's evidence the ship went to the Caribbean. I mean, it's mm. possible, but like, it's also possible that a ship that just came back from the Caribbean in the summer sat in the same port with this thing and then they got in there, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. That's what I was there's, just thinking. There's, yeah. There's other possibilities. Uh, like the better evidence that they had based on, um, biological life was the clams. Um, they had clams on the outside that were the size indicated the clams were about two years old and they're hypothesis was that this very subtle changes in salinity kill these things. And so if you move from port to port, the clams die off the side. So they, they're pretty sure the ship sat in that Harbor for two years before it was filled in. Oh, okay. But that was probably at the, the end of its life though. Don't you think? Very, very much so. Yeah. 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 So the last two years it so, sat there and then they filled it and dumped it. Right. Yeah, they probably used it until it got too leaky to be worth it anymore. And then if it still floated, they'd stick it next to the pier. And, you know, um, one of my favorite things I've ever learned in school here anyway was from Donnie Hamilton, who said that the natural order of man is that if there's a thing, like if there's a hole, people will put trash in it. Yes, I remember that very well, too. I I know that. It's like a law of humanity, I think. Like if there's a hole, people will throw shit in it. Hamilton's law, yeah. <laughs> People throw so, shit in I, the hole. I mean, I think that they probably use it as like either floating storage or part of a pier or whatever else, you know, to tie up other shit to. And then eventually, the it got old enough that they started backfilling. There was a um, an economic boom right after the Revolutionary War, and already land prices were expensive in Manhattan. So they're like, "Let me just fill this stuff in, and we'll have more land." And you know, if you look at the the modern shoreline versus the way it was then, it's it's quite a little distance they filled out. Yeah. I'm a bit of an idealist, so I like to to imagine, like, you know, right after the Boston Tea Party, these guys are like, hey, we got to go to Florida and get some rum or whatever, you know, <laughs> and they're like, I know a guy up in Philly, he's got some trees, I got a buddy over it, you know, in Albany, got some nails or whatever, you know what I mean? And like, these guys yeah, throw yeah. together a boat and they row down the coast. I don't know. Like it was like, I, I I imagine it as just like a workhorse of the revolution is what I pictured it as. And I know that I'm projecting something more, but it's just because I like had such a, you know, connection and it has such a connection to such a, like an impactful event in our, in our country's history, you know? So, um, if I had to play that like projection role and try and figure out some kind of like crazy theory, I'm more inclined to think that because of that British button, uh, that there is some like British aristocrats in New York at the time were like, Oh shit. Like we're, we need to get out of here. Uh, and so they quickly built a boat and then use that to get the hell out of Dodge. Ah, okay. Uh, for your, your many listeners, um, like all the wax that we use to put into the wood. Uh, if you have a, a, a jar of Miralax in your house, like the laxative, Exact same thing. That's peg thirty three fifty. Is it? Oh yeah, I knew it's in it's a lot of more finely ground. Yeah, it's in a lot of like uh, conditioners as well, um, shampoo and conditioner. Yeah. And then there's a lot of like crazy chemicals that we use that are in 
a lot of products we put on our bodies. And when we're, like, I just remember like having bags of sodium hydroxide, you know, which were, or citric acid. Yeah. Yeah. Citric acid is in like a lot of stuff. You'll see citric yeah, acid true. as an ingredient on a lot of things that you put in and on your body. And it's lemon juice, dude. It's just lemon juice. No, but the giant bags of that stuff, you know what I'm talking about? Right, but it's citric acid. Like, you know, like, I know it's, it's the same idea. I know, but uh, it so will, it will chew your like shoes apart. So will the sodium hydroxide. <laughs> it takes your shoes apart. Citric acid is like the, the can is mixed with sugar. That's what sour patch kids are covered with. It's just tart. It's just a mild acid. It's like vinegar, right? Yeah. Vinegar but in, in concentrated large form, it, really does not feel good on the skin (laughs) no it doesn't nothing concentrated feels great on the skin (laughs) i just remember you don't want that shit on you weight (laughs) (laughs) um so like the way that there was a a couple of years where we could tell people coming out to the lab that like oh this is sodium hydroxide man if you've ever seen fight club that's the stuff that burns edward norton's hand like that's the the soap ingredient yep and now these kids are too young they they have no idea what fight club is anymore (laughs) really (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah like all, all of my touchstone references are like just falling on deaf ears these kids are like born in 2000 now oh man yeah rough, what right? what do you have to reference then i, I don't have anything what, I, I you make have, a bad thing yeah no pop culture no, you kids you should start using from, real old shit from some, their youth man you, you should start using yeah, shit yeah, from yeah. like way <laughs> before you were born like the stuff that your sure. professors would use yeah Sorry. <laughs> uh, you know, you're familiar with the World's Fair of 1888. H.H. <laughs> <laughs> <H>. Holmes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, it's, it's, it's getting there. You're, it's weird to have so much distance in time between the students that are coming in. Oh, man. But it's, I don't know. It's, um, is it getting trickier, though, like, for people to find... I don't know. Um, is there more people do, going underwater, doing more underwater archaeology now? Yeah. Um, there's been a couple of changes in the past 10 years or so that have expanded the field. Um, one, we're not the only show in town anymore. Um, like ECU and West Florida, their programs are have grown a lot. And uh, there's a few others around the country we were talking about that the other day. Sure. Um, and worldwide, there's more. And... Um, countries that weren't really focused on this have now kind of become international hubs. So like a good example is Croatia. Um, you know, 25 years ago, there was nobody in Croatia doing underwater archaeology. Now they have the UNESCO center there, uh, and some of the best underwater archaeologists in the world. Um, but so here in the States, um, the, the laws changed, um, I don't know, about eight or nine years ago, maybe a little bit longer. Um, the law used to be, if you were doing like oil exploration out in the Gulf or something, yeah. the only places that you had to have an archaeologist with you to look was uh, was likely to have a shipwreck. So, like as you can imagine, if I'm on gas and I'm putting it down, like oh, this is not likely to have a shipwreck. Yeah. Um, so then the the law changed that there always has to be someone there because we have a lot of images of like shipwrecks in the Gulf with a pipe uh, a pipeline just like laid across it. Yeah. So, um, so those places are all looking for more people now. 
um, the sort of the as the technology is expanded and public interest is expanded, there's a more there's more of a push. So like what we'll have to do is you, you, like I know you said you never wanted to like be sponsored or anything, but you're just gonna have to like put in my pillow commercials or some shit. <laughs> no way! Did you hear about that guy? Mm-hmm. Oh man, we don't have to get into that. Look him up. <laughs> Real interesting, stable guy. <laughs> It is the dream, though, to to have like a really nice pillow that never gets uh, flat. Dude, I went with I no sponsor affiliation. I actually used a sponsor code from another podcast, you know, that I support, and got the Helix bed. But it's cool. You oh, do the that? oh, dude, it is amazing. Like I have never. Okay, I got the Helix whole setup. I even got pillows. The pillows came free with my code promo code, by the oh, way. Yeah, you. yeah, yeah. But I got the whole got did it all up, and then I got the grounding blanket. So like the blanket or or the sheet. It's a flat sheet that I sleep on, and it just has a wire that goes to the ground outlet. So it's like I'm sleeping on the earth. So it, so like grounds me out. And I know this sounds crazy and woo, but I bet in like oh, probably five to eight years, like almost every mattress will probably come with a wire already on it. Interesting. Yeah. There's already over 20 like peer reviewed scientific studies on like grounding your system. Like, you know, just going outside barefoot, like how it like flushes yeah. you with antioxidants. Um, and so the benefits of the nice bed, that's like you do the sleep quiz. So they make the mattress for you basically, or tell you which one to get. Um, just to clarify, this is a sponsorship. No, I'm not. I don't know, but I'm saying I'm I'm telling you the benefits of like taking the time to get what you want to sleep on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so and we did something similar, but we got ours from Brooklyn Bedding. See, yeah, and yeah, and they. So I didn't know how this shit worked. They always say you have like whatever it is, six months of sleeping, and you can return it any time. We got this bed, man, and we ordered like the medium firmness, and it was like sleeping on a tile floor. It, it, it was killing me. Oh, really? So finally, like, I, I called them up and I was like, hey, man, this, this mattress is no good. And they were like, well, it needs a little bit of time to break in. So call us back in 60 days. So I had two months of just shit sleep. And then finally, like, I called back. I was like, hey, this is ridiculous. Like, I, I cannot sleep on this thing. So they shipped us the next, like, a, a softer mattress, basically. Yeah. And then uh, all you have to do is donate the mattress to Goodwill or whatever and then uh, show them that, that you donated it and they, they don't charge you for it. Oh, nice. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. So the Twin City Mission here in town. And a, a, a the nice new one is nice. And, the new one is nice. Yeah, it's great. That is great. Yeah, we've been, we've been very happy with it. But what's it's not like now, I, what I've found is that I don't have to sleep as long. Because the quality of my sleep is better. At this point, I'm sure you remember, but that's not really a thing that's happening in our lives. We we don't have to worry about sleeping longer or shorter because we have a almost two month baby in the house. So (laughs) that's not a thing. (laughs) It won't last forever. It won't last forever. Sure. Yeah, it's hard now, though, dude. It's real hard now, especially. Yeah, yeah, you're. Yeah, it's like three to five months in, but there'll be a time like yeah, there's there'll be a time real quick where like you just won't even remember a time without your kid, which is weird. I have a theory 
that like I think that your memory formation is shittier when you don't get good sleep. Like I, I'm, I'm very confident on that. At least for me, I know that like if I have a couple of nights of rough sleep, I I can't remember stuff as well. Okay. So I think that this is the evolution way to make sure that you don't remember how shitty it is to have a newborn, so that you could have more than one. Dude, that's so good. That aligns so much with my evolutionary whiskey dick theory. <laughs> so my evolutionary whiskey dick theory is that like, if you drink a bunch, then you're probably going to select a mate that you don't want to reproduce with. And therefore your dick goes flat. <laughs> like, why wouldn't that work? Like we've been drinking for how many thousands of years, right? That's true. I'm pretty, I, I think long enough to, to that, for that to kind of take effect. I don't know, man. Like how many, you well, really no, think sucks. about it because the children born from like, you know, drunken one night stands don't, you know, maybe they don't, uh, they don't make it to reproductive age. <laughs> that's possible <laughs> and then and then they, they certainly have a harder go at things for sure sure and so um yeah. and then therefore the only ones that make it to reproductive age that are the ones that have are been conceived of a sober you know consummation <laughs> counterpoint people that are in the boat where they're going to have uh, kind of reckless drunken sex tend to have a lot of kids. Yeah. Like a lot of kids. So it's like the R versus K reproduction strategy, right? <laughs> like if you have 15 kids, at least one of them is going to make it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. R versus K is like us versus rabbits basically, right? Like rabbits have a shitload of kids. Yeah. Uh, so that they, and they don't have to care for them. They just like statistically, it's likely that some will survive. Sure. And what, well, you know, I think evolution made like all the little tiny baby things super cute too. So that, Oh, that's for sure. Yeah. So that you don't like your mind. squish them. <laughs> yeah. I, our, when she was only like two or three weeks old, I was changing her diaper and then she like explosive shat across the table. I've seen uh, that as if like, yeah, like, I don't know if you've ever seen... One of those squirt guns that you plunge. <laughs> from the pool, yeah. So, like, I, like, look down, I'm just covered in shit, and it's, like, just spread over everywhere, and she's, like, laughing, and I was so cute. What's the matter with me? Like, <laughs> it works. It works. Oh, man. <laughs> okay, so I recently saw Rogan's interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson, and what an intelligent guy. All right. That guy, okay. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, there was one thing that like just really stuck in me though, and it was his like r solid adherence to science. Like he had yeah, yeah, like yeah. a real rigid, like religious adherence to it, I would call it. Um, and I would only say that cause like, I just remember per in particular, like one phrase he said about it, science, and I don't know exactly what it was, but it was just like, oh man, that seems like religious there. Like that mm -hmm. nothing outside of the, the lab is real or 
I, I, I don't get it. Um, because I'm kind of, I fall on that camp, I think. Yeah. I, I, I'm, you know, you could probably see me like kind of, or hear me anyway, like distancing myself when you were talking about the moon waves and stuff like that. Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah I know. <laughs> um, I'm just know, curious, dude. I don't know what that is. I'm also very curious as a person, but, um, it's easy to get to like 95% of the way and call it good. So like, man, there's so much evidence for this and then just not do that extra 5% to really lock it in. Mm-hmm. And so like, you've seen enough for like, I believe this, this is like, I've seen enough. This is close. And then those kind of things, even if they're disproven once they're, um, once it's out there, it's really hard to dislodge it from the zeitgeist, right? Like you have these things. So this is, I have a hard time with, um, conspiracy theories. Yeah. Um, and I, and mainly because of something that George Carlin once said, if you think about how smart the average person is, 50% of the world is fucking dumber than that. Yeah. Like (laughs) these these conspiracy theories that require these crazy heady manipulations of people seeing like the next 70 steps ahead. Yeah, man, I don't think that's out there. I don't don't give us that much credit as a species. Yeah. Some of those things to exist like that. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, um, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson famously is uh, seen as like the spiritual successor to Carl Sagan. And Carl Sagan has been my personal hero since I was a kid. So like, uh, sure. it's, um, uh, and I've, I've felt like that for a long time of just like, let's be so cynical and skeptical of everything that we hear that uh, when something does finally make it past that filter, it's only the things that are almost unassailably true, right? That's why I was so hesitant to talk about my, like, flighty ideas of what the World Trade Center sure. might be. Pete and I have spent the last, I don't know, four years trying to prove our assumptions wrong uh, of just making sure that, like, this semi-plausible reconstruction theory, but everyone needs to understand that this is just semi-plausible. It's certainly not the only thing that it could be. There's so many, like so many variants that we don't have that you just kind of have to project. And that's where this kind of stuff gets pretty tricky. Sure. He has, Tyson has the, the, it's weird because like, if we knew this guy, we'd just call him Neil. Yeah. It doesn't sound right. If you don't say like Neil deGrasse Tyson. Sure. Um, if he had his, um, the, the things that he holds to be scientifically accurate can be verified in a, like in a lab and proven. Um, right. Whereas in archeology, span what are we going to do? Rebury the ship and have someone else excavate it and then try and see if they come to the same conclusions. Sure. Besides Dunzo. So like the, we, we are missing some of the tenants to be a true scientific discipline. We just use scientific elements within it to try and it's an art you know, be as. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of is. It's, it's, it's a sciencey art. Um, definitely i remember helen saying to that to me a long time ago that the the artifact will tell you what it needs well yeah that's what someone who's a a literal genius will tell you when they're like they can just intuit what's perfect for Uh, the artifact that's why helen was so amazing no but i've carried Uh, that over into carpentry um and like if you go to shoot a nail into a piece of wood and you put it in the wrong spot the or you have your nail gun t- 
turned the wrong direction, the piece of wood will split, especially if it's like thin maple or something like that. And I have learned over the years to let the wood like literally talk to me. And like, if I go to put a nail, like where it's going to split, I will know beforehand before I shoot that nail that if I do, it will break it. And so like, it's not the wood talking to you. That's you understanding the wood. Oh, man. That's, that's, that's the wood talking that's to me from you. I know because <laughs> I know it's the wood you know. telling me what it wants. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's you being a very good. I know. I know. I know. This is semantics it, here. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, semantics would be assailing the fact that you said it's literally talking to me. No, it's this not. Just okay. Like a philosophical, I think, you know, once you're really good at something, you have a sense of like what's going to happen before it happens. It's mm-hmm. like, I, you know, when you're, you do bow hunting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So like when you let go of an arrow, you know, if it's going to hit where you want it to go, right. It's not like a guessing game. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing. Like you get good at something. I don't hunt with a bow, but like when I go to the range, I know if I'm going to hit the target or not. Like I squeeze the trigger. I'm like, no, that wasn't right. You know, like that's uh and that's just you understanding the instrument or, or whatever it is, your, your craft or your skill. I think. Sure. I don't think it's spiritual necessarily. No, but there is, but, <laughs> but what about like intuition though? Like, um, Hmm. I'm trying to challenge you here. Cause you, cause now you've said, I, I just have, uh, you know, like a knowing ability, I guess that's interesting. I, I mean, you could, you could always line it back up to, or you could back it up and just say that, you know, that's just experience in your mind seeing. Yeah, but so what, what isn't? Well, uh, well, I would just say it would just be like uh, clues in your environment that you're, I, I don't know. I have feelings like general feelings, like, and I've, and I've, honed it practiced it intentionally like so when i'm hunting do i want to go to this spot or that spot go this way or that way and like i have an intuitive like gut feeling that says yes this no that and sometimes it's a little wishy-washy especially if i try to look right at it um but for the most part like like even driving in a car Okay, and flowing through traffic, like I can feel like I should get over now, and then all of a sudden I get over now, and then all the clears cars clear out of my way, and I go way past a bunch of other people, and I there's no way I could have predicted that happen. So but, yeah, um, to so, your point, yeah. When I saw you talking, I knew to ask, do I still have audio? <laughs> but let me. So to put it back to you, um, let's, we'll start with the, the hunting thing and then go to the traffic, right? Sure. So your intuition when you're hunting, when you're taking environmental clues, did you have that same in, uh, intuition the first time you did it? No. And like I said, I've honed and practiced it. Yeah. As you build up your skill, you become more aware of certain factors, the environment that are going to be important to that thing. Right. And, and your, experience with it helps you predict um, just like the first time someone threw a baseball to you, it was really hard for you to put the glove where it needed to go to catch it. But like the thousandth time, you don't even have to think about it. That's the intuition, right? Yeah. Like you've, you've honed that skill with driving. 
I think it's interesting that you say that because for me, it's always the absolute fucking opposite. (laughs) That's because you're thinking about it. You're like, man, I got to get home quick. I hope nobody gets in my way. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I don't have the experience necessary to counter that, but um, again, like I would suggest that uh, maybe that didn't happen very often the first few years you were driving. And at this point, you know, you've been living where you've lived for a long time. You've been driving for a long time. You kind of get a sense of patterns. Like, um, you know, I know how to time lights in College Station pretty well now because I've been here sure. for a decade. But like when I first got here, I was constantly frustrated by traffic. Um, there's, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I don't there's a very skeptical part of me, right? But I don't think that we have this um, spiritual connection to the environment about us. I think that our brain is really, really powerful and that we can take in a lot of information and process it and put it into the scenario that we're in without necessarily being fully aware, cognizant of the fact that we're doing that, right? Uh, no. No, because I like because I could go outside like, you know, like I said, when you go outside barefoot, like I feel connected to the earth and I feel better like, you know, like you feel better in nature than you do in concrete, you know, Um, but. What, the, 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 so just the instincts that I have, I can't, I, the, what about like discernment? Okay. So like you can walk in, like you, you're, you stand in front of a lot of people. You can tell like the people that have an attitude or a mood or just don't like sure. you. And is that because your brain is picking up on micro facial expressions or or Sometimes. or is it because you're sensing something deeper? I think that we spend almost exclusively uh, an inordinate amount of time studying each other, right? Uh, if, like right now, we're looking at each other. I'm looking at your face. I'm yeah. seeing how you're reacting to the things that I'm saying. You're doing the same, and we've been doing that over and over. It just goes to the same the same idea that we have. Um, such a, a bizarre amount of experience reading people that it would be insane to suggest that you wouldn't pick up on people having an attitude or people being shitty or not paying attention or like I can definitely pick out which students when I'm teaching are paying attention versus which are kind of drifting off. Um, sometimes it's obvious they're like, no, yeah, but other times it's just you think people can be looking at you and you can tell that they're not really following what's going on. That's actually a pretty important part of being a decent teacher of being able to like recognize when people are nodding, but they're not getting it. Sure. Because then you have to like stop and circle back. But again, I don't know. So I don't put any stock in the idea that there's like an energy that I'm reading. I put stock in the fact that like, I've been watching human faces for 40 years. So like I should be decent at it by now. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. you have, okay, well let's go to the root of it then. Like, cause you know, you have like a deeper connection with the, people that are closest to you, you know, your newborn, like that, that can't be like all in your mind though. Right. Like you're just perceiving this person as somebody that I just happen to love more because I know that I, that I reproduced them. Like, do you know what I mean? It's like, it's increased your capacity for love. Like you never knew that you could even love that much. 
I, so like just to put my cards on the table. Yeah. I don't think anything happens when you die. No, I, 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 I believe that for a long time too. So I think that everything we have is contained in this electrical meat sack in our head uh-huh. and that all of the perceptions that we take in and all of the, the intuitions that we have and our capacity for love and all of those things are internal to your brain. Um, and so I think that it's, uh, you know, I, I do, you're right. Like my capacity for love has increased since I've met this little girl, um, just a couple of weeks ago. Sure. Like as soon as she came out, I was like, holy shit, I love this thing more than anything in the world. That's actually what my partner said. As soon as the doctor put her on her chest, she's like, Oh my God, I love her so much. Um, but like I'm, I don't think it needs to be an external thing that fosters that. I, I think that we're capable of doing that within our own minds. Or it's just a, like a genetical or genetic, uh, emotion. Oh, yeah, <laughs> uh, well, I'm trying to think it's like, it's I mean, an emotion, right? Like love is an emotion. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but like, uh, oh, absolutely, of course, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, so like, where do you, where do emotions come from? I, I think it's the mind. Um, and yeah, but the, how? You know, but then yeah, they maybe, release they release hormones and shit, though. That's it gets real. Well, yeah, emo uh, like uh, your hormones and pheromones, and and then you have a visceral reaction. You know, like uh, yeah, um, you know, it's like what we were talking about before, but like the. I think it's reasonable to suggest, but here, stop me. If no, you don't agree with this. No, I, I, is no, it, I love is this it man. Possible to, so is it possible to suggest that everything that happens to us is done by our biological brain? Do you consider that a possibility or are you Wait. so certain that there are things that happen that, that we have some connectivity to a greater thing um, so like kind of based on what you're talking about before, like feeling more connected to the earth. Yeah. Like, is that something that could possibly be just internal to you or does it rely oh, on some external Dude, mechanism? I'm, I like my personal experiences now, cause I was definitely in that camp in the camp of nothing happens with you die. Everything has to be shown in the lab. Well, well, everything happens when you die. It's just not well, to you anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know what I mean. You know what I mean. But that, since then, I've had a lot of experiences, individual ones, that go way beyond the realm of of anything that I've been told. And then I've talked to other people that are like, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. But then it's it's a lot of like weird woo shit. And I hate all the words. I hate the word energy. I hate resonate and manifest and all that get, uh, we almost said something else, <laughs> all that woo stuff. Uh-oh. But, but there's something else there because I've experienced it deeply and not just that I've intentionally tried to grow it and strengthen it. And so like when in doing that, you know, I'm using my mind, maybe I'm just, I don't know. Uh, your perception creates your reality. You know, I mean, quantum yeah. physics and the the split light theory or whatever, whatever you're looking at makes it what it is. Right. I'm yes. Well, like, it's important. I think I'm getting off recognize... on the wrong spot there. No, no, no. I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I think it's good in these kind of pursuits. Like, believe me, man, like, I think we're roughly the same age, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. So like we've had, not, we've not had, we have actually had remarkably similar life experiences. Sure. <laughs> having gone from yeah. the military, military to the military. And, yeah. But like, so I've certainly, I've had a lot of experiences like this as well. Um, but I, the only difference I think here is the jumping off point where, um, where you've gone to try and like strengthen that and explore it. I'm comfortable with just like, Oh, that's weird. But I don't know why. Like, I, um, okay. like the answer is allowed to be, I don't know. Yeah. See me, I'm like, that's weird. Let's see if we can make it weirder. <laughs> sure. And, and that's perfectly reasonable. Like, yeah. um, people will be like, Oh, how do you explain this mysterious thing? Like I'm not, I'm not on the hook to explain every fucking thing. I don't understand. Like, it's okay not to know stuff. We didn't even know about like tectonic plates until 70 years. Oh yeah. Ago. Yeah. <laughs> I remember they were teaching we're that still, in like third grade and I was like, are you sure? You sure that's how that's working? Uh, it's neat. Um, yeah, plate tectonics was listed as like a radical theory in the 1940s. Sure. We're so, you know, we've learned so much so fast in the past couple centuries that we're, you know, almost arrogantly as a species to the point where we think we've learned everything. And we haven't. We're just on the cusp. Mm-hmm. We've never even been to a different planet except for little robots. Uh, like hey, the dude! They put like that flying drone on Mars. That was cool. Dude. Oh, don't get me wrong. That's <laughs> fucking badass. Yeah. But it's not that. Yeah, but, but that's like, all it is, right? Yeah, we're fucking we're, monkeys, we're man. This little dot. Yeah, exactly. We're we're barely past the monkey stage. You know, uh, we're going around beating our chests, getting mad, getting horny, getting hungry, getting drunk, and then you know, bullying other people, and then dying. That's the, the we're we're just apes. Yes, uh, but so I, I, there are certainly things in my life that I've experienced. You're like, wow, what the fuck was that all about? But then, uh, I think it's it's reasonable to be like, I don't understand this, so I'm gonna stick this back, and maybe at some point I'll be able to circle back to it and like explain it a little bit better, but not necessarily. Like there are just some things I just don't know. Sure, and maybe. Maybe we'll get there someday, but uh, until basically from my point of view, until it can be what, like my buddy, Neil, I wish I, I, I wish yeah. I could meet him, but um, if it can't be verified in a lab, I, I, you know, I'm okay with not being able to say definitively whether or not something is true. Sure. So like to the, to the point of like uh, non explainable intuition or, or uh, things that people see that don't have, an explanation in physics or something like that. Um, I, it's okay for me not to understand it. Like yeah. it's, it's, I'm not going to try and build out a description that would fit into a certain narrative that would explain it. That might not be right. I'd rather just not know it. You know what I mean, that is perfectly legitimate. That's a perfectly uh-huh. nice way to stay. <laughs> um, yeah, I just have had experiences like either dreams or like meditative visions, um, which, you know, connecting with, you know, people that have passed um, a lot of my relatives. If it, Dude, I guarantee if, if I know you and you die, come see me because I pretty much fucking see everybody after they die, usually within the first week or two. I'm glad you called me before. <laughs> come see me because yeah almost everybody that dies that i know like i'll have them in a dream within a week after they've passed 
find their way to Wisconsin. I don't know, man. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping, man, we, we were just the other day. I would love to be wrong about the afterlife. I would love it. Like, absolutely. I'd love to die and find out that I get to see my grandparents again, or I get to, you know, mm-hmm. uh, hug all the people that I've lost. But like, just because you really want something doesn't make it happen. Sure. It's, it's just, there's, it would be great, but I've certainly, I've also had compelling dreams where I've seen like my great grandmother was super close. Um, and, and yeah, it's one of those things where you wake up and you're like, Holy shit, that was amazing. I'm so glad that like I got this little piece of her back. Yeah. And that's where she exists now. It's, it's just like little weird electrons floating around see, my brain. And see, this is where I kind of, I get real into it though. It's like, cause when you're in a dream space, you're in the dream, but you're also all of the dream. So like you feel all of the emotion of like the whole dream. But when you have an experience with somebody else that's external, and I don't know because I didn't see your grandma, but it's it there's like a knowing that they're not a part of the dream. Like I don't oh, feel their emotions. Like because I've definitely had dreams about people, right? Plenty of people that you dream about. Brag. All the time, right? <laughs> Who doesn't dream about people? You typically do. And for uh, the most part, like I don't you like the direction this is going. No, but for the most part, whoever they are, the people in your life are going to pop up in your dreams. Okay. They're, you can right. tell you that you've had sex dreams about me. No, you can just tell that they're, <laughs> that they're like NPCs, right? Non-player characters. <laughs> they're yeah, just yeah, yeah. like a part of your dream but when you have when i have had like one of these like more connective experiences like there's like a knowing in that they're not a part of what they've come into my realm right like i don't know how else to explain it and that's just yeah i have all kinds of shit dude i almost bought i wanted to buy this lottery ticket this morning i don't buy lottery tickets um i was getting my bottle of water and my energy drink going to work and uh, there was a lottery ticket just staring at me. And I was like, give me that number eight right there. And he's like, it's $30. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man. I was like, yeah, okay. And he, and then he didn't want to take, he only wanted cash for it. It's the first time he wouldn't take a debit card for a scratch ticket. I was like, okay, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be. And I turned around a guy behind me and I was like, you got 30 bucks, I'd buy that lottery ticket. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if he just told me he only would take cash and then took it himself. But so I guess going back to your point, uh, how do you know if that was a winning ticket? You've just built up this whole thing. I don't, I don't man, but I don't buy lottery tickets. I don't buy lottery tickets. And I'm like, Oh man, like, okay. I'll tell you this, man. The last few times when I do buy lottery tickets, they typically win. Well, that's pretty good. I I don't buy them because I think that they're attacks on people who are shit at statistics. I no, I only buy a lottery ticket if I feel it, and it's rare. It's rare, and yeah. I and I pulled a two hundred dollar one like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Want to hear something real messed up? Um, back, I don't know, like two weeks before this whole GameStop thing blew up. Yeah, I was making a joke about how like it would be hilarious to like buy a thousand dollars worth of Dogecoin, like the meme Bitcoin thing. Yeah. And then, uh, I didn't. And then it went up. What? 
<laughs> you could buy a Tesla with it now. Yeah, I'd be rich beyond my wildest dreams if I just capitulated and bought the thing that I was making a joke about. But uh, yeah, that's crazy. There's all those There's someone that passes on the Beatles. I know, <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's always someone that passes on the Beatles. That's funny. No, but what I have noticed though too is that like. Anybody can be a conduit for this, like, I don't know. I feel like you have a, like a universal, like a higher pathway. Like, you know, inside this is right or wrong, right? In almost every decision or anything you do, you know, it's either the right decision or the wrong decision. If you truly are honest with yourself and you ask yourself, and I think that's coming from your six dimensional self in a higher reality. (laughs) <laughs> I, I mean so you're like you're dipping your toes into a lot of philosophers man but i know um you know i i think there's different ways that you can look at philosophical right and wrong yeah um and and you know obviously you know like uh different philosophers had different ways to view this oh okay um, but i've I, i've always maintained that i think w- one we're trained very young um, on, on what is ethical and what isn't right. Like, you know, intuitively, I think we also know that it's bad to do bad things to other people, or it's bad to do things that make people hurt or sad. Um, and it's good to do things that make them happy. Like that's, I, I think that's, that's so basic in its logical construction that I don't think that needs to be, um, that, that doesn't even really need to be learned. Um, I, I mean, it's, it's, one of those things where if you think about it for a, a couple of seconds, because we are capable of higher reasoning, then it's apparent whether it's something is right or wrong. There's obviously things that are more complicated, but, uh, you know, I, I think most of our ethics and moral compass comes from just being creatures of logic. You know, I, I don't think that there needs to be a sixth plane that tells you if something's right or wrong. I know that it's bad to take something from somebody else that isn't mine because it's not mine and I just took it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain things that I do that might be bad that I don't know. Like, yeah, let's wrap this up. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to throw these fucking headphones into the sea. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't remember what I was talking about. That's now. fine. I'll <laughs> say this, Chris, I will promise to try and be more discerning and try and see is this really just my brain making this or is this some woo shit that chad is inventing right or 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 is this real woo right but i want you to be on the lookout for things that are more like how did i know that i i i am because you know it's something that occurs to me a lot because if you look at um just surveys that have been done like I, I don't believe in God at all. I don't believe in any kind of afterlife, right? So yeah. that puts me at like four to five percent of the human population. So what makes me so much smarter than every other fucking person on the planet? Like what am I missing? Is it makes from the same kind of logic that I've been describing, it's logically more realistic that there's something out there that I'm not part of as opposed to it not existing if so many other people have that connection because the vast majority of people are not just spiritual, but highly spiritual. Yeah. The vast majority of people believe in an afterlife and a higher power. 
Um, it's an overwhelming majority, despite yeah. the ridiculous persecution pro- um, complexes that most religious groups have. Like that, the, they're a hundred percent in the majority. Like, Man, no that is joke about it. That's so, so insanely insightful. You got to think about it, right? Like what, what's going on with me? But that said, man, I'm happy as a clam, uh, you know, Sunday <laughs> mornings, fucking making a big breakfast, <laughs> coffee on the porch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but I do try, despite not having any kind of boundaries to, or, or, or uh, connections to like a spiritual order that would dictate moral philosophy or what's right and wrong, et cetera, et cetera. I do try and live, um, to, an almost obnoxious extent, the most morally correct life I can. Um, you know, I, I yeah. really, and I'm, I'm very inflexible about a lot of things that other people have suggested I'm being inflexible about just because I like, I want to take that stand and be like, no, that's not right. I'm not going to do the thing that's easy. I'm going to do the thing that's right. Yeah. And, and that's not, so I can say that it is possible to do that without any connection to spirituality. That's so awesome, man. You know, I'm trying anyway. No, that's great. I love it. I can't wait to have you back, Chris. We're going to have some great, great audio next time. I will. I will bring a fucking microphone. next. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is. It'll be good. And uh, I'll come a little bit more prepared as well. 